from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this first weekend of September. Here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Could cattle prices soar through next year? Well, that's probably 2025 late or 2026 before we see significant increases in beef production. The latest Ag Economist monthly monitor hints at major consolidation that could completely change the cattle industry. Build it and they will come. We just want it to be destination golf that uh, is unique. will give people an experience that they can't have at most places. And so far it's working out. A destination golf experience unlike any other as we travel the countryside with Andrew McRae. Forever Farm Off, a tractor dating back to the World War II era. And in John's world. How long will high rates last? U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when blood, sweat, and tears meet rain, wind, and sun. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the news, the EPA announcing this week its final rule that amends the new definition of waters of the U.S. The agency forced to make some changes after a Supreme Court decision in May, and it limited its power to regulate wetlands. The updated rule now states wetlands covered by the Clean Water Act must have a continuous surface connection to navigable waters. This means that a wetland not directly connected to a large river, stream, or coastline might either remain unregulated or come under state-level regulation. Legal counsel at the National Beef Association has done in-depth analysis of the new definition, and they tell us they're satisfied with the revisions in regards to what it means for protecting private property rights. They also believe it significantly scales back what they see as federal overreach, including on wetlands. It also changes the definition of adjacent when we're talking about adjacent wetlands or adjacent features um, to include only those features with a continuous surface connection to jurisdictional waters. Um, it also eliminates federal jurisdiction over interstate wetlands. So a few, I would say, significant changes um, that will significantly narrow the, the definition of WOTUS and thus the impact of WOTUS to landowners across the country. Other groups not so happy. They're accusing the Biden administration of not fully following the Supreme Court ruling and suggest the legal battle over the jurisdiction of federal waters will likely continue. Weather also making big news this week with Hurricane Idalia slamming into Florida. The eye of the storm striking Florida as a catastrophic Category 3 hurricane near Keaton Beach. That's in what's known as the Big Bend of the state. The storm bringing with it high winds and life-threatening storm surge not seen in the area in more than a century. The surge flooding into Fort Myers, Florida and into homes being rebuilt following last year's destruction caused by Hurricane Ian. Our message now is to stay where you are until you hear they all clear from local officials. Um, we don't need you out on the roads. There's still so many hazards after the winds and rains have cleared that we need to make sure our residents and visitors are aware of. The hurricane quickly tracked across the state and to the coasts of Georgia and South Carolina. Louisiana's governor getting a look at areas of the state hit by wildfires. The governor saying afterward that nobody alive in Louisiana has ever seen drought conditions this severe. Democrat John Bell Edwards adding he doesn't think it's ever been this hot for this long in the state. 
It's reported more than 31,000 acres have burned in the so-called Tiger Island fire, which is the largest wildfire in recorded state history. More than 500 wildfires burned across the state in August. Scientists working to stop the spread of African swine fever have made a critical discovery, a gene in the DNA of pigs that is needed for the infection to happen and it could be a game changer for the hog industry. The research carried out at the Roslyn Institute of Scotland, scientists looking at pig cells, editing each one to lack a specific gene compared to the others to see how those cells responded to ASF. Their analysis pointed to a group of genes that produce proteins associated with an immune response to infections. They were then able to determine a single protein that is essential for replicating the virus in cells. Their findings raised the possibility of amending that gene using gene editing to develop pigs that are resistant to the disease that has killed more than 200 million pigs worldwide. Well, another breakthrough, and this could be very good news for the nation's citrus industry, a possible cure for destructive citrus greening. Scientists with the Ag Research Service studying ways to augment a citrus tree's natural resistance to diseases by incorporating receptors that can recognize diseases and then activate a plant's own immune response. One way to do this, they say, is by cloning the DNA from plants that have a natural resistance to the disease and then adding that to the microbes of trees that need treatment. Previously, the only way to deal with citrus greening was to remove affected trees from orchards. Now that researchers feel they have a more effective solution in hand, they plan to use what they've learned in tree nurseries. Scientists see the technology being deployed over the next several years. The disease has cut citrus production by 75% in Florida alone. That's over the news. Well, as Florida's cleaning up from the aftermath of the hurricane, other parts of the country are begging for rain. We'll have a check of your forecast coming up next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new 1200 series top dog forage boxes now feature new heavy duty dual gearbox driven apron chains and are available in 36 and 40 foot models. Find out more at the H&S website. Meteorologist Andrew Whitmire joining us this weekend. Andrew, NOAA now forecasting an above normal hurricane season in the Atlantic, saying it's due to record warm sea surface temperatures. But from sea to land, many of our viewers looking at heat returning as we enter into September. And we just had the first major hurricane landfall here in the U.S. And as we go throughout the tropical frequency, well, as we are now entering the first few days of September, this is typically now through about the 1st of October when we see the peak uh, hurricane frequency across the Atlantic and Gulf Coast. And this is why typically this is when again the waters are at their warmest and they've been really warm this year. In fact, parts of Florida right along the shorelines there have recorded temperatures as high as into the upper 90s and we still have plenty of temperatures well into the 80s scattered with it where you see some of those darker reds, even a few scattered 90s. So still plenty of fuel for any low pressure system that decides to develop to work with here, not only for this week, but going forward over the course of the next uh, 30 to 60 days. Back here at home, uh, going over across the mainland here in the lower 48, and we're really going to be watching for another round of heat. It's going to feel anything like at least a Labor Day weekend for many states here across the north, as we're going to be again watching 
for more heat building back on in. So don't be closing the pools just yet. Parts of the northern prairie, they're likely to end up breaking some record highs or at least tying some of that as we head throughout the holiday weekend. Looking at a rain outlook, it's going to be uh, pretty much uh, hard to come by raindrops here. We are going to be watching the Pacific Northwest for a nice trough that's going to be developing, and that will bring with it a few chances for some spotty showers up along the Rockies and off along the West Coast. Otherwise, we're going to be watching for a front to come on through sometime between Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday this upcoming week, and that's going to be basically the only rain chance here across the main Ag Belt regions here of the U.S going forward through this first full week of September. Heading on into the jet stream as we walk you through this first full week of this new month here. Again, we're going to be watching this upper level ridge expanding its way further north of the Great Lakes, uh, Midwest and New England coastline there. Meanwhile, we're going to be watching a nice little trough trying to develop along the Pacific Northwest. That again will bring with it a chance for a few hit and miss scattered showers. Otherwise, it's going to remain quite toasty across much of the country, especially east of the Rock here as we close out this upcoming week here for the month of September. Let's go ahead and walk through the rain chances here as we go throughout this first full week. And again, as mentioned, we're going to be watching a cold front moving on through about the mid portion of the week, and that's going to be the only substantial rain chance for the Corn Belt and Ag Belt regions for the next seven days. Thanks, Andrew. Well, the heat and weather definitely the headline on crop tour last week. But how concerned should we be about droughts impact on the Mississippi River heading into harvest? Jim McCormick and Mike North join us for a marketing discussion next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Jim McCormick and Mike North joining us. All right, Jim, we've had a little reprieve from this warm weather and the heat last week, but that really was the storyline of crop tour last week. As we talk about the debate, is the crop drying down or dying down? What are you hearing from your clients and what impact could that have on production? Our clients time pretty much are saying it is dying down. It's pretty amazing how hard this U-turn this crop has made in the last 10 to 15 days. And that's going to definitely have a detrimental effect. I mean, if you look at where some of this corn's at in the milk stage, they're talking losses of fifth, anywhere between 5 and 15% off of the yield just in that stage. And then beans, uh, plain and simple, we're hearing pods being boarded. Uh, very, you know, essentially two to three beans in a pod instead of three to four. So uh, in our viewpoint, this crop's getting smaller. We've got more heat coming at us again. Memorial, you know, it's going to feel like Labor Day weekend. It's going to feel like Fourth of July weekend. And uh, it's just not the way we want to see this crop end. Well, as weather continues to impact the markets, Mike, let's look specifically at corn. Even if we have an average crop, even if we see these yields and the production estimates coming down based on some of this heat and the impact. I mean, when you look at demand today, does it even matter, Mike? Until we take corn uh, yields below 168, uh, that, uh, that, that balance sheet's gonna still be pretty fluffy. And so, you know, as you look at the path forward, we could give away another five bushels and still feel really comfortable with ending stocks numbers uh, and still making a case for corn uh, to not move far, very far from five bucks. Well, another hurdle. Harvest could be picking up. As you mentioned, Jim, things are, are drying down or dying down really quickly. We could see harvest um, hit pretty quickly. We saw a very mature crop on crop tour last week. But as you look at some of the challenges that could hit right at harvest, we're looking at low river levels on this Mississippi River. What kind of challenges those could those create for moving grain at a time when we're going to be harvesting this crop? Well, what's going to happen, Tynus, is going to essentially drive up the price of shipping. Your barge freight, freights are going to go up. They're not going to be able to load as much out. So that will make us a little bit less cost 
effective trying to get it down to the Gulf. But on top of that, we do have that drought going on in Panama. So the Panama Canal is also raising rates. It's costing an extra $10 a ton to get the grain through the Panama Canal. So we're finally getting price competitive with South America. But if we can't get this grain shipped due to low river levels, the prices go up, it may take make us right back uncompetitive again, unfortunately. So Mike, what are some things some producers need to be doing to protect these prices ahead of harvest, considering we could see some logistical challenges? Well, building off of Jim's comments, the first thing you have to be watching for is basis because the buyer's response to all the things he pointed out is to widen basis, lower basis, to make it less advantageous. And so if I'm a seller and I've already got hedge to arrives in place because I made sales earlier, I'm not going to be waiting around to see if basis uh, can get any better. Uh, likely it's going to get worse. And as you talk about, you know, flat price forward, uh, there is going to be and still is some pretty strong carry in this market. So as I look at this, the other thing to to do is defer the decision and not deliver this fall, but to use storage to take advantage of a stronger carry and avoid the forthcoming basis hurdle that we're going to have to overcome because of all these uh, logistical uh, elements at play. We, we talked a lot about corn, but Jim, when you look at soybeans, we know the scenario is a tad different there. And you look at the heat and the potential impact it's having. Do you think there is more potential for upward prices when it comes to soybeans? I do think beans have a better opportunity. Like Mike said, you know, the corn balance sheet really does have a lot of room for it. The beans do not. If these bean yields would fall down to the 47, 48 level, like some people are suggesting it could happen due to this late heat, we would believe we would have to move these prices higher in a way to essentially ration out demand, which could be a little bit tough with the growing biodiesel demand we're going to see, as well as try to encourage South America to produce even more beans because uh, that balance sheet would get incredibly tight with those kind of yields. Well, there was some good news on the demand front for wheat and soybeans when it comes to export sales. So we'll talk about that coming up later on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Firestone Ag. Save instantly when you buy two or more eligible Firestone Ag tires during the Go Harvest Rewards promotion. Visit FirestoneAg.com or contact your local certified Firestone Ag dealer. It's well known that the cost of buying a home or doing business with a farm loan is high. But how long could high interest rates last? Here's John Phipps. Mortgage interest rates, residential, just hit a 20-year high, topping 7%. This is faintly amusing to some of us, as my first home had a 7% interest rate thanks to the VA, and we celebrated what a bargain it was. Coupled with the rising cost of housing, mortgage rates have placed home ownership out of the reach for many Americans. It also has another effect, what I call mortgage bonding. During the still unbelievable run this century of interest rates as low as two-something, those long-term mortgages are a powerful inducement to not move or get a new mortgage. For farmers, many of whom are looking at sub-4% long-term land financing, the real interest rate when inflation is subtracted is zero or negative. Higher high borrowing costs will slowly dampen farmer demand for acres as record land prices mean all but a few will have to borrow some to buy. Buying out siblings in an estate settlement has suddenly become a little more challenging. Similarly, speeding up the payoff of a mortgage to get out of debt 
makes a little less sense if that extra cash could be safely invested at, at far more than your old mortgage rate. Interest rates will slow the turnover rate for real estate, but eventually some of us will have to bite that mortgage bullet. The question becomes, how long can high rates, or relatively high rates, last? Maybe history can help. This graph from Kevin Drum shows the duration of rate increases by the Fed of more than three points. Now, the nine years of the 80s, that's grim, but I think the oil price spike was probably unique. The other rate increases seem to suggest they last about three to four years. Since rates begin go going up in March of 22, a reasonable guess would be late 25 at the earliest to return to previous rates. The problem with this historical approach is rate increases were previously forced back down by a faltering economy, which is not the case today. GDP growth, unemployment, and consumer spending are not shouting recessions on the way, just the opposite. Our economy is robust. My guess is to watch the housing market because it may be the most sensitive sector to interest rates and buyers can only stall so long. Another indicator will be employee quits, as workers are essentially frozen into that earlier 4% mortgage, and it could take a whopping raise or much lower interest rates to get them to move. Above all, we should look at this graph and marvel at an unprecedented era of cheap borrowing. Thanks, John. Well, a tractor dating back to World War II Machinery Pete, he has Tractor Tales next. Tractor Tales on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Farmall. 100 years of milestones, community, and memories. Since 1923, it's been the one for all. Celebrate with Case IH at farmall100.com. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. This week we have a very special story for you with a tractor with a World War II connection. A 1940 Farmall A from Iowa. Beautiful, but an amazing story behind it, Larry. Tell us how you came upon it. It was in 2001, came upon a consignment sale going on in a, in a, a lot. And I walked around and I stumbled onto this tractor. It had a good quarter inch thick layer of cake dust all over the whole thing. Uh, you couldn't see any paint on the, on the top side. The lights were all covered. Everything was generator. Everything was covered. You couldn't under, it, it couldn't, it couldn't tell what it was actually, except it was an A formal. And I got the bid and he said sold and a, a mid -age, middle-aged man ran up there and really adamant he wanted to buy the tractor from me. And uh, first I told him no, and then I got inquisitive, and I asked him why he was so adamant about buying it. And he told me the story that a uh, young man in, in the early 40s had uh, bought the tractor and was going to, I don't know, he's going to start farming or something. Anyway, this young man was about the same age as this man's dad, and he got drafted into service in World War II became a casualty and never came home. The tractor was in a building, the neighboring farm of theirs, and uh, in storage for over 60 years. Uh, never moved. But when you got it home to the farm and kind of cleaned it up, I mean, this is not restored right here. 
Oh, it's original. It's, original. it's all original. I'm sure that the, the fact that it had that layer of dust on or dirt on it actually preserved the paint. Thanks, Greg. With drought and increasing interest rates, ag economists are now concerned it could be well into next year before rebuilding of the nation's cattle herd takes place and it could completely change the cattle industry as we know it today. We'll tell you why in our Farm Journal Report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, three months ago, Farm Journal teamed up with Mizzou to launch the Ag Economist's Monthly Monitor, a survey of nearly 60 ag economists from across the country. And while their views surrounding the ag economy haven't really budged, it's been extremely revealing of other trends to watch in agriculture. This month, we asked ag economists how long until the U.S. cattle herd finally starts to rebuild, and that led economists to talk about something bigger, concerns about major consolidation that could completely change the cattle industry as we know it today. As harvest is set to heat up across more of the country, ag economists are impressed with the staying power and resiliency of the U.S. and ag economies. Although there's been lots of concern about consumer demand for meat, international demand for a lot of our commodities, it, it seems like the resiliency of where we sit today. So we're not talking about farm income at a, a record $162 billion, but we're also talking about farm income that is 125 to 130, according to our, our, our survey, which just reminds me to say not as good as where we were a couple of years ago, but also maybe not as tough as some would have thought uh, once we started to see these lower prices. Scott Brown helps author the Ag Economist's Monthly Monitor, which is a survey of nearly 60 economists from across the U.S. And he says there hasn't been much change in their outlook over the past three months. When we look at the August data in particular, uh, we saw folks about 5% less optimistic about where we sit a year from now relative to today. And certainly everybody keeps answering that uh, rel today relative to where we were 12 months ago, uh, it is about 10% lower. Brown says while economists' views on soybeans show optimism, their projections on corn prices are starting to cool. Well, I think on the crop side, the, the one to be optimistic about is soybeans. Uh, I, I think demand there is is uh, certainly stronger than we might see in, in a commodity like corn uh, as biofuels and renewable diesel will all, all continue to maybe drive some crush demand as we look ahead. When asked what could impact crop prices over the next six months, the anonymous survey revealed demand, including domestically and with China, the war in the Black Sea, especially if shipments from Russia are curtailed, El Nino, as well as the strong competition from areas like Brazil, including for commodities such as corn. On the corn side, a little less optimism. I would say weak demand uh, exports in particular uh, seem to be a lot of what we have answered back from the survey. And the expected corn prices in the next 18 months uh, ahead over the last uh, three surveys certainly show a, a downward trend in what folks expect on the corn side. 
The August survey asked economists when they think the cattle herd expansion will start to take place. The majority think cattle contraction will continue for at least another year. And a smaller percentage think it could happen in the second quarter of next year. Well, that's probably 2025 20, late or 2026 before we see significant increases in beef production. So if demand at all stays with us, we could be talking about these kinds of lofty prices uh, for several months down the road. The survey also asked economists what factors will impact livestock prices over the next six months. Tighter livestock supplies and U.S. herd liquidation was one of the biggest drivers. But there are also major concerns about consolidation, something already hitting pork and poultry. I kind of wonder when we talk about changing structure, whether or not the cow-calf industry will look uh, different. So maybe bigger operations, uh, perhaps some of the smaller uh, beef cow operations will have retired and we won't see those back. So I'm, I'm curious to watch uh, consolidation at what's been probably the slowest segment of agriculture to, to consolidate over time. Two other things to watch over the next 12 months, according to economists, are what's happening in Brazil as well as geopolitical risks. One economist said, quote, we're seeing an explosion of competitive production coming out of Brazil at the same time that geopolitical risks are increasing in a world facing mounting credit risks, end quote. Another response in the anonymous survey was, quote, the current most important factors are weather and input costs. In one year from now, it will be Brazilian production policy. As economists look ahead, one positive is the thought the cost side of the equation may come down a bit, especially for inputs like fertilizer. The question was about nitrogen prices, and over the next six months, the average response was about 8 to 10% lower uh, out of that, that survey respondents. Uh, we, we did see some that would suggest uh, slightly higher fertilizer prices in the next six months in their responses, but others suggesting more like a 25% cut. Uh, and fertilizer prices. So, you know, generally we had everybody saying well, we will see continued lower nitrogen prices uh, over the next six months, but a lot of volatility around those answers. Well, next weekend we're kicking off our college roadshow thanks to Bex. And our first stop is the University of Missouri. We'll get to talk to Scott Brown as well as a couple other economists, but also from a major meat processing expansion just announced to visiting the location that aromycin used to treat livestock and animals and even people was discovered 75 years ago. There's some interesting stories that we'll share. That's all next week. But first, economists in the survey are also worried about demand for corn and protein. Mike North and Jim McCormick rejoin us to talk markets next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. All right, we started to talk about demand, but Mike, some export sales this week reported from China when it comes to, to soybeans, when it comes to wheat, and that seemed to get the market excited. Absolutely. Just building on the uh, idea that beans might get a little bit short, not knowing what South America will bring to the table. We've seen a flurry of uh, some export sales and uh, certainly good news coming in, you know, at the higher end of expectations and showing us that even with beans back towards some of the highest prices we've seen on new crop, that we still aren't maybe too tall to warrant some uh, buying behavior from China. Well, Jim, one thing that our Ag Economist Monthly Monitor that we talked about in the Farm Journal report, one thing that it did talk about is how resilient the ag economy has been and the general economy, even when you look at higher interest rates and inflation and, and everything. But do you think we are at a tipping point with that? Are there some warning signs, Jim? 
I believe there are. I think one of the biggest things we need to look at, Tyne, is the student rep debt repayment. That was frozen at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of back and forth. Would it uh, be extended or not? It is not. It's kicking back in here in September. And the reality is your average student loan repayment is $400. If you got a family of two, of two people that actually went to college, they may have student debt payments that are going to kick back in $800 plus. And the reality is they've now got to figure out where are they going to get that $800 from? Is it going to come out of their grocery bill? Maybe not buying as much beef or something, or maybe not even just going out to eat or just slowing down the economy as a whole. So these are some cracks in the economy that I'm, that I'm seeing. Yeah. And, and Mike, when you look at trying to rebuild this cattle herd, not only are we looking at drought and the impacts and, and the expectations for, for that, but we're looking at higher interest rates. And so as we see these producers try to rebuild, how big of a headwind will interest rates be this go round? Oh, it'll be massive. And it kind of has the double-edged sword analogy attached to it. The interest rates uh, pile on to the consumer as well. But if I'm carrying uh, very high-priced cattle that uh, are on leveraged dollars, that gets really difficult to maintain. And so capacities could be uh, squeezed on that front. Uh, but, you know, let's face it, just the, 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 physiology of the animal is such that it's going to be difficult to fully rebuild this uh, very quickly. And so, uh, you know, in our work on the, on the dairy side of things, we see a lot of growth on that front to help bring some more capacity back into this space, but it's going to be difficult to uh, rebuild this herd very quickly. And interest rates is certainly one of those headwinds. Jim, what about the U.S. dollar? I mean, we know that that has just such an impact on exports. What direction could we see the U.S. dollar take? Right now, the trend's been the, to the upside for the most part time, and I don't know if it's going to change anytime soon. And like I said, the higher that dollar goes, it is just going to make us that much less uncompetitive in the world market. And that's not what we want to see, but uh, that seems to be the trend, at least at the moment. Yeah, Mike, on, on the dairy front, the ag economists that we surveyed, they expect milk prices to hover around that $20 mark for the all milk price. Do you agree with that? And if we do see those types of prices, is that going to, is that even break even for dairy farmers? Uh, that'll be above break even. Uh, feed costs have come down far enough where that will put producers in black ink. Uh, bottom line though, it'll be difficult to hover around $20 because this isn't just a domestic discussion. This is equally a uh, global discussion and 18% of our milk leaves this country uh, in one way, shape or form. As we look at China being one of our biggest buyers, they're economic headwinds are certainly going to push back. And if we cut this herd by uh, 1%, 1.5%, uh, it'll, it'll be a, uh, you know, uh, a small, small move relative to what we could see on the demand front. And that, that's where things can get a little bit murky in this discussion and what will weigh heavily against trying to maintain $20 milk. So while we have a chance to get there, um, you know, this uh, likely isn't a price that's going to stick around forever either. Jim, Mike mentioned China. And when you look at China and the outlook there and just the, 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 the warning signs when it comes to China's economy, what commodity are you worried most about? Right now, I would say, you know, it's going to be the beans. They are obviously the big importer of beans in, around, in the world. So I think that's a problem. But it's also the protein. The reality is China's economy is slowing down. Their economy, their people are getting older. And, you know, to me, it looks like China is going to struggle a little bit. And that definitely will be a negative headwind for all commodities. Yeah, Jim McCormick, Mike North, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more when we come back. 
American Countryside on U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by Nationwide and their farm certified agents. Founded by farmers nearly a century ago, Nationwide has the knowledge to help you succeed today and protect what's next for your farm or ranch at nationwide.com Andrew. If you build it, they will come. That popular line from Field of Dreams may be about baseball, but for one Nebraska farm family, they saw an opportunity for a golf course, and they built an experience that will last for generations. We're off to Nebraska this weekend for American Countryside with Andrew McRae. Bryce Anderson farms in view of the Missouri River in the northeast corner of Nebraska. His family grows corn and soybeans, some in the river bottom and some in the hills. And we did this interview on top of one of those hills. When settlers first got here, this was all grassland. There were no trees, except along creeks and river bottoms and that sort of thing. They bought this piece of ground, about 650 acres, in the mid-1980s and farmed it for a few years. Then the Conservation Reserve Program, or CRP as it's often known, came along and the ground has remained in that program ever since. But there was an idea within the Anderson family that perhaps a part of this ground could be used for a unique purpose. My son, who is basically a scratch golfer, has been pressing for the last 10 years to do something along the lines of build a golf course. They brought the idea to several golf course design firms and all discouraged them from the project. There was simply too much dirt to move to smooth the terrain to make it walkable. But one company, King & Collins, saw promise in the project and took it on. They began to fill some valleys and lower hills to make a walkable course on the old CRP ground. We just want it to be destination golf that uh, is unique, will give people an experience that they can't have in most places, and so far it's working out. It's called Landman Golf Course. That's Landman with a D at the end, the Danish word for farmer, a nod to the Anderson family's heritage. You will barely find a sign to direct you to the course, and you'll travel down several gravel roads in farm country to reach it. But many, many people make that drive. We open tea times on New Year's Eve for this year, and this is the first full season we've had. Within about a day, over 90% of the tea times are gone for the entire year. You'll pass by tractors and machinery sheds when you drive up the hill to the small clubhouse. It's different, it's fun, and has received a lot of national attention. We've had enough reviews that in the Golf Week magazine, we came in in the top 26 public and private courses in the entire country. The ground surrounding this course is still in the Conservation Reserve Program. The fairways traverse the hill ground overlooking the river bottom. It is truly a unique place to golf among the farm ground of northeast Nebraska. This turned out to be much better than anything I ever expected. I, I've just been astounded by the job that the designers King and Collins did on this particular course. So the ground that once grew corn and soybeans and then became CRP ground today grows grass greens, attracting farmers and people from across the nation to come and tap in a putt. Traveling the countryside near home in Nebraska, I'm Andrew McRae. Thanks, Andrew. And you can hear more of Andrew's travels on AmericanCountryside.com. Well, finding land is extremely competitive, and that com competition is only growing. But is there a way to make the fight for finding new land to rent more fair? That's customer support this weekend. Land rental unfairness. The fight to find more land to rent isn't just extremely competitive. 
it can be downright ruthless. But is there a way to actually make it more fair for those looking to rent more land? That's customer support this weekend. From Travis Butler in Osawatomie, Kansas. After seeing several reports on TV about farm kids not returning to the family farm, I posed this question. Why is it when farmers retire, they rent their ground to the biggest farmer around? I started farming when I was 13 years old and had a really hard time finding any ground. Now, 30 plus years later, I still can't rent enough to make a living. Having not inherited anything and my parents not farming, it has been extremely difficult to get a foothold without a farming name. Even when my friends retire, they rent their ground to the biggest farmers around who already have more than they can handle without giving the smaller guy, not just me, a chance. They all say they're glad to see young people take an interest in farming, but don't think to give them a chance. I've always worked off farm to make ends meet and to, to better my machinery so that when the opportunity presents itself, I can take advantage of it. But I get passed by time and time again, only to be told they didn't think of me or didn't know I was wanting more ground. Not just the big guys need more ground. I just wish farmers would think about the future generations with different last names than their own. Travis, many of us have felt the rental system was unfair at some time, but I've discovered over these years it's generally not. We extol the tradition of family farms, so land rented to relatives is a virtue we strongly embrace. It may help us to think of rental land not as a commodity to be distributed equally, but a valuable asset to be entrusted to a trusted, a prudent steward. Just as a few would trust a multi-million dollar windfall to a stranger when your close friend or his daughter is an established banker or financial manager, land rental is a way to demonstrate how much one values years of friendship or successful dealing. Consider how you felt when your friends didn't rent to you. There is a growing leveling mechanism, however, cash rent. Auctions or sealed bids treat bidders the same, reducing them to a number. It is in some ways fair, but I think I speak for most farmers when I say we're not crazy about the whole idea. The proven economies of scale for larger operations will give them advantages, but often anyone can submit a bid. Land rental may not seem fair, but any effort to make it more egalitarian can infringe on the fundamental rights of ownership. Thanks, John. We'll talk about another competitive area, that's ag equipment. And from an electric tractor to bigger machines, we'll take a look at some major equipment releases that happened just this week. That's next. Well, it was a busy week for ag equipment announces. From an all-electric tractor to larger equipment, here's what could be coming to an equipment dealer near you. New Holland rolling out its first all-electric utility tractor. Take a look. The T4 Electric Power uses a state-of-the-art lithium-ion battery pack to power a fully electric drivetrain. It's estimated the 74-horsepower tractor can run for about four hours on average or up to eight hours on low-energy demand jobs. It comes in a four-wheel drive and with 84-inch bucket and can perform some autonomous tasks. New Holland says the near silent operation is ideally suitable for a variety of farms, including hay and forage, dairy, livestock, and also greenhouses and specialty crops. 
Well, Case IH unveiling their new Steiger 715 this week, calling it the most powerful Steiger ever. At 778 peak horsepower, Case says this model ranges in size and scale with an eye on visibility, maneuverability, and roadability. But the main goal is really to be efficient for farmers. The Steiger 715 only comes with tracks. The company says the unit cuts down on compaction. It's nimble and fuel efficient. And John Deere introducing the 1 Series Round Baler. It comes in three models with eight different options. The 1 Series aims to help optimize moisture and consistent bale weights while tracking it in real time. Farmers are able to read bale moisture, net wrap availability, and weight in real time via a new in-cab display. It automatically opens and closes the gate at the right time, eliminating that repetition for the operator. Well, a lot of announcements this week, and you can read more about those on agweb.com. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We'll be on the road quite a bit this fall. That's because we kick off our U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow thanks to Bex. That's next week we kick things off at the University of Missouri. So if you're in town, we would love to see you for that. We're excited to visit some of the land-grant universities this year. Well, from all of us at U.S. Farm Report, I'm Tyne Morgan. Thanks so much for watching. Be sure to tune in again next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.